0: Yeah, we can perhaps uh, start again. Um, as I said, we have studied different dimensions of, uh, of the EU, including some uh, policy dimensions, and, uh, and one of them is uh, foreign and security uh, policy. And uh, Helena Schuster will now tell you a bit from, from her uh, work package on uh, foreign security policy. Please.
1: Thank you. Uh, Now, in this work package, uh, which is coordinated by myself together with uh, Professor Wolfgang Wagner, who is sitting right here, uh, we focus on uh, the uh, possible democratic challenges in the field of foreign security and defence policy. Now, uh, sceptics might counter that the question of democracy is of little relevance for the CFSP and CSDP and two arguments are often presented in this direction. Firstly, uh, that the EU's foreign and security policy and even more so its defence policy is intergovernmental. That is, it's the member states that, is, that decide in this policy field. Thus, democracy is a matter for the individual Member States and their domestic political systems. Secondly, um, deciding on matters of foreign security and defence policy uh, has traditionally been considered to be the prerogative of the executive. So should one find that there are democratic challenges in the CFSP, uh, this could be seen simply to be in line with established practice at the national level. So why bother with democracy in this policy field? Well, with regard to the latter point, our answer uh, may be summarised fairly briefly in that it is difficult to find any principled arguments why foreign security and defence policy should be exempt from democratic control. There may be a need in some cases due to the specific nature of this policy field for a particular arrangement that allow for secrecy or speed of decision-making. However, the definition of the kinds of cases, issues, or situations in which such exemptions uh, should be acceptable must in themselves be agreed upon through democratic procedures. With regard to the former point that the question of democracy does not arise with regard to the CFSP and the CSDP because it is intergovernmental, Uh, this has been the main concern for uh, the work package and the research that we are doing and I will focus (coughs) the rest of my presentation on that matter. The key question here is if national governments and national foreign ministers can be held accountable for what they do in the context of the CFSP and the CSDP. And further, if it is possible to trace the decisions made in the CFSP back to some form of democratic authorization by citizens within the member states. When we refer to the CFSP and the CSDP as intergovernmental, it is implied that such authorization and accountability is possible. We assume that Member States remain in control and that they only delegate power to the European Union and that this delegation may always be revoked. Now, our findings so far suggest that the ability of member states to do so uh, may be under pressure in several regards so that there may well be reasons to question the democratic chain of delegation that is entailed in the intergovernmental conception and to question whether this chain is intact. A key challenge is often in this field to identify who decides. It's often difficult to know or predict where responsibility for decisions actually lie. European foreign and security policy is made through interaction and exchanges between the executive branches of the member states. Key actors are national bureaucrats permanently based in Brussels, And organized in institutions that you all know, such as the Political and Security Committee. Uh, And it seems as if it is mainly the autonomy and room for discretion of these institutions uh, rather than the influence of actors such as supranational institutions and NGOs that challenge the whole idea of intergovernmentalism in this field. The political and security committee is, for example, often referred to as the script writer of European foreign policy. It is here that European foreign policy is often conceived of in the first place. Further, this policy is shaped with reference to values and principles that are seen as particular to the European Union and not with exclusive reference to interests and values of the member states as one would assume in an intergovernmental context. Uh, Often states also refrain from using their right to veto or they change their position in order to facilitate common policies in line with a culture of seeking a consensus. So, the way in which European foreign and security policy is made seems to make it difficult to disaggregate decisions and trace them back to individual foreign ministers and national governments. Incidentally, Uh, It may also point to a certain fragmentation of national foreign policies in the sense that a a European branch seems to operate on a certain basis of autonomy alongside uh, national foreign policies, which are obviously not at all abolished as a result of this. Uh, Further, it is not always clear exactly where accountability falls at the European level. Now, given that these developments are mainly the result of informal practice, uh, it's obviously quite difficult to establish procedures that may compensate for the effects on citizens' status as authors of policies. Also, there is a sense of contingencies or haphazardness with regard to which issues are brought outside the intergovernmental mode of decision making. And this, of course, also makes it difficult to ensure proper channels and mechanisms of authorization and accountability back to the national level. Now, um, we know that the European Parliament through active pressure, has gradually extended its influence also in the field of foreign and security policy. However, and Wolfgang can speak more about this, uh, it seems that they are neither uh, able to authorize decisions nor alone to hold those that make decisions accountable. On the other hand, national parliaments' uh, ability uh, to uh, hold national governments accountable in this field uh, is also being reduced. Simply strengthening the powers of the European Parliament may, however, not be a sufficient solution to the democratic challenges that emerge in the field of foreign and security policy. As I have suggested, Uh, It is most of all the lack of clarity with regard to where authority and power actually lies uh, that raises uh, the democratic challenge. As a result, what might be required then is a thorough reconstitutionalization of foreign policy and security policy in order to further clarify the lines of authority and power. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you, thank you so much. Another um, um, dimension that we have studied is uh, gender and justice in uh, with regard, uh, gender and justice, or and democracy with regard to to the uh, to the European level. And Yvonne Kellingen has been. Uh, what is the work package leader of, of, of this one and Sara Clarevo her, has worked with her since the very start of, of, this, of this project. I remember very well when we met in LSE in, in 2006 on this. Yes, yeah. yeah, so uh, please, we, are, we, we look forward to hear it. So? Thank you, Eric.
2: Hello. Uh, well, I'm going to present a snapshot uh, snapshots of the findings of Work Package 4 on gender justice and equality. As Eric said, it is coordinated, this work package, by Professor Yvonne Galligan, who couldn't uh, come here today. Uh, the development of gender equality in the European Union since the Treaty of Rome, but especially since the 1970s, it has been taken as some modelic examples for other countries outside the European Union on how to advance in this area. A lot has been written about this, especially of how was this made possible, this advancement, uh, but it is in RECON, in this project, that for the first time the, these processes are evaluated for their democratic quality. So uh, the main objective of this work package was to assess the democratic quality of EU decision-making processes on gender equality. But what we did through a process tracing exercise was to... Uh, Examining examine the process from the time the proposal is being, a proposal for a directive is being uh, developed in the <coughs> European Commission all the way down to uh, its implementation at the national level. Okay. For the national... For the examination, the analysis of the democratic quality of implementation, we took five member states, Austria, Greece, Hungary, Poland, and Spain, and we examined two directives when looking at you know, all the process from the EU supranational level these are equal treatment in access to and supply of goods and services this is a directive uh, that was passed on 2004 it is a council decision so it didn't follow the co decision procedure uh, it is a very it is in a way it is a landmark directive because it is the first time that gender equality policy in the european union the scope is expanded to other domains outside employment. And this was made possible by Article 13 of the Treaty of of Amsterdam. Uh, So the directive was quite, in a way, what to include outside employment, was quite open from the beginning. Uh, Just to give a a very brief description of this process, the process was very, very long, and problematic, And problematic because of very confronted, very different interests uh, uh, being involved in the elaboration and this decision-making process. Sometimes uh, views that seem at sometimes Irreconciliable. Um, as opposed to that, uh, the, equal, the second directive that we examine is the equal opportunities, in, equal opportunities and equal treatment in employment and occupation, the recast of 2006. As opposed to the goods and services directive, this was quite—it seemed quite unproblematic. Uh, it, is, it, it followed the co-decision procedure, that meaning that the Parliament had a big role to play in that. And even though it seemed at the beginning like a pretty straightforward technical exercise because it consists of compacting different directives in employment, actually the European Parliament politicised this directive, and it is then when it became uh, it started becoming like interesting uh, what happened uh, from thereafter. So. Uh, what we did in this process, we apply uh, three clusters of uh, uh, different indicators uh, clustered in, in three categories. One is representation; that's the idea that gender equality claims are critically examined uh, by uh, qualified and uh, interested members of the community. Accountability is that the decision-making process are are public. And responsiveness, it, 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 it has to do with appreciation and respect as well of different interests d- during deliberation. So very briefly, I'm going to go now to the findings, the main findings. Okay, at the EU level, this is the first stage of the research when we, 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 we examine this, the, the process at, at the supranational level. And what we found the first sort of clear finding is that uh, the overall democratic quality of this process is better when in co-decision procedures than in council decisions. Another finding is, and this came more clear when we went down to the member state level, is that in terms of recognition and responsiveness, actually uh, the quality at the EU level is much better than in Member States, in terms of, of recognition of you know the needs of you know different gender interests, and also of respect, of respect during deliberations. In other countries like Austria, there were insults, and, the, and that principle was broken uh, several times. Also, we find that co-decision processes. Uh, were more transparent than council decisions, and even us as researchers, it was even much easier for us to get information uh, for the directive that was followed by the co-decision procedure than the other directive that was a council decision. Uh, What happens in a council decision is that when the the directive goes into the council, it's like a block, like a a wall, and and, and very little uh, documents are available to to the public to to see and even to stakeholders, interest groups. Um, we also found that co-decision processes uh, were more open to input uh, from civil society groups, from women's organisations. Although this does not mean that they were more participative. Uh, the difference between the two directives, the the, uh, the co-decision, the REACH directive, what the Commission did was. To uh, do an, an open, open um, internet consultation, so it was open. P- uh, different organisations could could send uh, uh, recommendations. Um, but th- what happened is that not many submitted recommendations. Um, but in general, because there is more role in co-decision procedures to the European Parliament and the European Parliament is very open to civil society groups and different interests that in a way made the process more participative. What happened at the member state level when we looked at the implementation? When the first finding that it was sort of common across the five member states that we, that we studied, but to a varying degree, is that women's interest groups were excluded from the policy process. These varied, for instance, in Spain, they were excluded women's organizations, but not women's in trade unions and, and women in political parties. In Greece, for instance, we, it is on the other side of the spectrum, actually they were quite excluded women, Femocrats, all women's interests from the process. Uh, interesting as well is that political deliberations uh, in the process of implementation uh, made very little or no reference to the EU. So in a way it was debated this as a domestic issue. Uh, very little information about this is coming, this EU directive that we have to to transpose. Um, uh, there is a sort of, there was a sort of use, even though it was not mentioned, there, is a, there was a use of these EU directives in order to, to do something else. Um, and in, in two countries, in, in one, in one um, case, which is Spain, this was taken as an opportunity to expand... On 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 women's rights. So actually, the content of a law of the law that was that was introduced was much the scope was much uh, larger than the directive. In other countries, like in Austria, it was taking an opportunity exactly the opposite to restrict uh, existing rights in Austria. So the EU was. It's, it's interesting. It's taking us an opportunity to, to restrict national rights. Um, For the Central and Eastern European Member States Examine, Poland and Hungary, we found that uh, this was not a political process at all. It was a very formal legalistic process. There is very little interest on gender equality, so it was just a formalistic procedure with very little debate. Um, I'm going now to finish uh, with uh, just a couple of thoughts. The first thought it is that it is clear that when we compare democratic, the democratic quality of process at the European Union and the member state level, uh, at the European Union, those at the, Europe, at the European Union level, the quality of democracy is overall better. So that calls the idea of a retrenchment of the European Union to model one is, is quite worrying and the second one is what is going the challenges for the future because in the current economic climate uh, already many member states are are uh, in reports they are saying that their budgets for their uh, national gender equality body has, uh, they have been cut so it, it, the thing is that gender equality is not a priority anymore. It's not on the agenda, or that is the danger. Uh, I have been speaking with officials at the Commission during this week, and they assured me that at least at the EU level, this is not going to happen. So, let's let's hope that this is the case. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And now it is um, Agustin José Menendez, who is... um, uh, has been in charge of a work package on the political economy of the, of the EU and if there is such a thing. So, uh, but, uh, so we look forward to your report.
3: The Eurozone crisis in ten minutes and one mystical vision. <laughs> the three premises in a way are that the structural causes of the Eurozone crisis are to be found in the constitution one of the, of the causes is to be found in the constitutional law of the European Union Second, that the crisis has been aggravated by the fetishistic interpretation of European and National Constitutional Law. And third, democracy has suffered. First, asymmetric monetary union. Maastricht, federal and depoliticized technocratic monetary policy, plus formally political and national fiscal and wage policies. These splits require coupling procedures so as to render a collection of autonomous fiscal and wage policies coherent, the functional equivalent of a single fiscal policy. So, we have four things. Full ownership of national fiscal policies, ruling out of the acquisition of debt by the European Central Bank or National Central Banks, and the discarding of a collectivization of debt of one member state. How silly these policies were. Free movement of capital, not only at intra, but also at extra, to ensure accountability via the financial markets, what we are experiencing now. This was designed to be like that. See political dialogue as a means to coordinate national monetary policies, governance, and targets focusing heavily on annual deficits. Four, excessive deficit mechanism, which left room for collective discretionary decision-making. Sanctions had a symbolic value, God forgive, because applying them in most cases will harm the interests of all member states. Under this regime, the peaks become a success story. But how? The model of growth is based on foreign capital, leading to unsustainable growth, real estate bubbles, dramatic growth, for example, in England, in, in Greece, sorry, Freudian, Freudian slip here, of private indebtedness, And third, Inflation that leads to an increase in nominal wages, which does not improve the purchasing power of the employees, formerly called workers. Second, shift of the collection of tax to unsustainable activities, lessening the real effort made by citizens and the coupling higher taxes with better public services. Third, so the Pareto optimality, we can pay less taxes and get public, uh, better public services. Third, unsustainable economic activities silently increase the liabilities to the exchequer to the extent that the state acts as the ultimate guarantor of the financial system. Formidable growth in the case of Ireland, but noticeable in all peaks. Fourth, the size of the sustainable parts of the economy is is smaller, and as a consequence, sustainable employment is smaller. And take notice that large levels of private indebtedness and the placement of public debt on private foreign hands resulted from the financial liberalisation promoted by the European Union. What was going on on core Europe? Saving GLAT in Germany, Netherlands, Finland, Austria, joining the uh, party in pig land. Unilateral internal deflation in Germany through basically Agenda 2000, which heightened the competitive position of Germany by depressing wages and fostered the savings GLAT structural disimbalances within the euro area. Free movement of capital at extra accelerates the growth of the financial sector and encourages the tendency of some member states to operate at tax heavens. Let's not mince words here. UK, Ireland. Think about the 5,000 million euro a year transiting the Netherlands in order to reduce the tax bill, which at the 33 standard corporate tax rate, gives four times the rescue fund in one year. And take notice that the European Court of Justice was claiming to have solved the problem by declaring the abuse of rights when wholly artificial arrangements, not mildly half artificial arrangements, were used to avoid taxes, the savings glut and the big current account deficits were considered evidence of the good working of financial markets, evidence that they were better investment opportunity in pig land. Ireland and Spain were generally praised in the peer review exercises and the governance. Ireland was mildly reprimanded for pro-cyclical policies in 2002, if I remember correctly. Portugal was placed under a deficit-deficit procedure, but praised for splendid structural changes. And Greece was chronically in deficit, but we kept silent about that. On the peak side, when the crisis hits, lemon Falls, the structural revenue deficit becomes visible. Contingent, so-called, liabilities resulting from the state as ultimate guarantor become real, and unemployment explodes, further increasing public expenditure. The national economy further is further dragged by debt servicing to foreign creditors, because it makes a difference whether money is borrowed from abroad or not, because it determines where the money goes when you have to pay back. And on core Euroland, the collective borrowing decisions taken by private financial institutions were the ones that created before a de facto fiscal union, as Martin Wolf in the Financial Times has rightly reminded us. By betting their solvency as financial institutions on the capacity of public or private peak debtors, doesn't matter at the end of the day, the financial institutions created a unity of financial destiny, if I am allowed to be sarcastic. When the Eurozone crisis exploded, the European Union found itself with a radically small room of manoeuvre resulting from the overlap of European and national constitutional law. The treaties, as we saw, seem to preclude the European Central Bank from acting as credit of large resort to member states, while other member states could not do that either. The only small window of opportunity here left was Article 122.2, that allowed for assistance being offered, provided that one member state is hit by exceptional occurrences beyond its control, akin to natural disasters. If an economic disaster is akin to a natural disaster, and this is a very good argument, other member states are expected to be solidaristic, and I stress solidaristic. But here comes the constitutional fetishism. The German executive led by Angelina Merkel insisted on a specific interpretation of its constitutional law which would prevent any action that could undermine the stability culture of Germany and was showing the Lisbon judgment. She was wrong. It was the Maastricht judgment. Anyway. Because solidaristic assistance to Greece could be regarded as imperiling stability, and because a Greek default was equally regarded, the two options were off the agenda. And here comes the mystical vision. Here is the mystical vision. This is what Trichet showed them on May seventh, and then the game changed. Notice that Greek in Devon also goes through tax heavens, as I insisted before. Keep that in mind. This is what they saw, and then they decided to do something. And you can see in uh, more clear terms what is the cost, what is the exposure to peaks uh, of core member states and other states. The result of what they did was hybrid. European lenders pretended that the Greek problem was one of liquidity, not of solvency, and provided Greece with bilateral loans, thus outside the treaty framework originally, at quite obviously non-concessionary rates, so-called punitive in other languages, and conditioned the whole package on a drastic set of austerity measures at the cost of taxpayers and public employees. And within hours of having, after six months decided that, they had to escape the fiction of bilateral loans and institutionalize even if only for three years, the Greek solution, corrected and enlarged under Article 122.2, thus defining solidaristic support as loans at punitive rates under a strict conditionality. This is constitutional fetishism, you know. At the same time, that the ECB started to circumvent the prohibition of buying national debt by means of buying it in secondary markets, so at the last counting of the Financial Times, the ECB had 20% of Greek debt on its coffers. Very good. To stabilize it, now we have the reform of economic governance, which confirms three choices. Fiscal policies are to be coordinated by means of shifting from political discretion governed by legal principles to rule-based fiscal policy. The only problem is that fiscal policy cannot be run like that. Second, substantive fiscal and wage policies are expected to be sterilized as a means of achieving autonomous socioeconomic principles. So there will be coordination because nobody will be moving. You know, there is no car accidents if you don't take the car. It's the same principle being applied here. And rescued countries and countries under the shadow of being rescued have for all purposes, half their democratic policies and put into a bracket for a long period, the policy imposed through conditionality and hind- hinder and the name and speak, go to the Europlus Pact, very interesting, is ownership. They are going to be owning the policy, meaning they cannot do deciding anything. This is, by another means, internal defla- deflation, which, given the circumstances in which they find themselves, with a clear incapacity of public authorities to foster investment, means a brutal lowering of wages and consequentially an increase of the capital share in the economic pie. Very nice. Fiscal union, I conclude, must be, will be, and can't be. Any attempt at achieving fiscal union through a brutal process of internal deflation and a later adherence to a draconian subordination of fiscal and wage policies to monetary policies is a recipe for political, economic, and whatever kind of label you want to put, disaster. It places the stability of the union one big political accident away as Wolfgang Munchau also reminded us lately. Ladies and gentlemen, Altiero Spinelli claimed after the single European act that the mountain had given birth to a dead mouse. We know now that asymmetric monetary union was very dead mouse also, and that the bailout was a born dead mouse. How many more dead mouses can the European political project afford?
0: The financial nice, crisis was not um, foreseen by, uh, by us when we, did, when we designed the project. Maybe we should have seen, seen it coming. But uh, no, it is um, uh, EU and beyond in a, in a way. It is international trade and the conflicts of law and it is... Uh, Christian Jorges, who has been with our projects also before, before, uh, before um, Recon. So, and he has was then in Florence, but uh, now he is uh, back in Bremen. So, he will um, say something about this. And Carolina Zurek, from uh, who is um, has been a former student of uh, of uh, Christian, and who um, will uh, also report a bit more on this project, on this part of the project. Chris.
4: Okay. Yeah, uh, let me start with uh, two or three general remarks. In the 80s, European studies started out with a project integration through law. Where are we now? <laughs> has enf- enabled us lawyers to survive a bit, but as you see in the ex- example of Augustine, they force us to do other things. We are still the lawyers here, and what we observe is something of a very general importance. The European constitution has been taken away to a large degree from the lawyers and from the legal debate. I am not assessing the pros and cons, I'm just saying this is an observation which is important to keep in mind. It is a change in the picture of uh, what is going on in Europe. And it is, um, in a way, unavoidable because what uh, Augustine just characterized as fetishism or formalism is indeed something which in such a complex institution cannot work. Lawyers, on the other hand, are people who are studying very concrete issues. And this is how our work package started out. Uh, The first... Yeah, the, the two issues on the table are typical things what what the way lawyers observe the world the world. We have the freedoms, we have a control of anti competitive practices, and we have a commitment to the social economy and there is a problem and lawyers try to balance these kind of things. In the WTO law we translated this problem in the issue whether a one dimensional orientation of the WTO law can live with the current need and the obvious need for uh, non-liberalizing policies, social regulation. Now, behind all this, however, as good lawyers in Germany cannot live without a theory, so we had to develop a theory, and the theory is the conflicts conflicts law theory of European law and international economic law. What does this mean? It is a sound which doesn't sound comfortable. L- Europe is about unifying Europe is about harmonization and somebody comes along and says no it is a law responding to conflicts. I have co- concretized this in the second second uh, uh, can you go on one head? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the second slide a bit uh, European law is compensating failures of nation states. European law is not necessarily deriving its legitimacy out of a supremacy principle. It has been talked about this morning. It should, at the same time, be seen as a means of compensating the misbehaviour, the failures of nation states. If one looks at it in this way, and Eric has cited Thomas Paine, uh, "No, no, uh, uh, no taxation without compensation." We are doing. We are doing this all the time and European law has a a, a large uh, commitment here and we have heard about representation. My vision of conflict is also about the inclusion of the other in our polities. We have heard today about representation, how complex this really is, so the RECOM project is not yet coming to an end. Okay, the supervision of cooperation, the response to the need for cooperation is something European law has to do, and this is what is meant by this conflict law perspective. This has been developed for the European law uh, for european for the European Union, and we have also transported it to the transnational level. The transnational level is of course different because we do not have there at the WTO level for instance regulatory competences or means to Implement and to supervise the members of the WTO as we have the means in the union to do something with the member states and their administrations. Okay, but nevertheless, the vision of WTO law as a conflict solution mission, as a mitigating thing, is something one can observe. How complex this is, we will now hear. And one of the very important functions of lawyers and the legal scholarship is that we are very concrete. We have heard a lot of things today about theorizing at a broad level. The law has this wonderful talent to look at so many different sides of a problem at the same time and try to bring this together. This is at the same time our destiny that this then becomes very concrete and it is again, difficult to generalize, but we can learn out of concreteness. This is a message of Carolina, who has studied the really important issue there for many years now.
5: One of the examples we have looked at was uh, GMO regulation, and we looked at GMO regulation as an uh, example of this three-dimensional, um, three-level um, legal conflict. Um the challenge that is being posed to the one-dimensional regulatory reliance on science as uh, arbitrary in international conflicts is, uh, is being illustrated here. And the advantage of the conflict approach is that it allows us to explore other dimensions other than traditionally perceived science. And um, what we are observing now is um, a certain cautious move Towards encompassing different non-scientific dimensions in um, GMO regulation, GMO regulation in the EU experienced a very uneasy history. Um, one reform, led to another reform, and yet another reform. And with the de facto moratorium and the transnational conflict under the WTO, uh, things have gotten a little bit, a little bit. Uh, Tricky. Um, the WTO ruling and the reform that, um, um, that happened as a result of that was perceived as something that will resolve the conflict, but uh, it was only one side of the story because opposition arose from, um, from the inside and created an internal conflict within uh, the European Union and certain member states that did not want to accept the European policy. And this was all um, additionally challenged by the enlargement, uh, especially the, the enlargement of Central and Eastern European states with their specificity. Uh, we looked at a case of Poland's accession to the, to the GMO trade regime and attempts um, that were undertaken by the Polish government to restrict GM cultivation um, on the basis of arguments that go outside the traditional natural science approach, so that try to develop um, a more multi um, multi approach um, the, the, the uh, arguments that have been um, presented by the Polish government trying to restrict GM cultivation was um, national focus on traditional natural and organic agriculture. Secondarily, specific national agrarian structure with high degree of fragmentation, with such small plots of lands that cross-pollination is uh, practically impossible to avoid. And finally, fulfillment of expectations of the Polish society. According to the surveys that have been undertaken, uh, Polish society does not want GM cultivation and does not want GM food, and uh, really... um, serious proportion of the society is ready to take uh, higher costs in order to avoid um, GMOs uh, cultivated on the territory. And, of course, since these arguments do not fit in the traditional framework of science as interpre- interpreted uh, by uh, European regulation, these individual attempts have failed. What we have seen, however, is that um, Poland and other Central and Eastern European states have joined an already existing uh, block of GM cultivation opponents, and this may have contributed to the development of a new approach to cultivation uh, that is now an, um, uh, an undergoing uh, reform. Under the new uh, Commission proposal, uh, member states can decide to restrict or ban GM cultivation on the territory on the basis of uh, certain social, cultural, or ethical considerations which are specific for that state. On the one hand, we like to see the reform as opening up to the wider set of socio-economic uh, considerations in the, regulatory, um, in the regulation of the market, And this is a a real victory of this type of thinking. However, um, unfortunately, there are voices that uh, that, um, look at the reform as escaping the transnational conflict into a series of internal conflicts that will will arise. Um, Therefore, the question can be asked whether this opt-out option uh, has an actual potential, or whether the risk of the individual member states who will take advantage of it, uh, of going into uh, international conflicts that they will have to take care of individually, will be too big for the member states to actually make make real use of the clause. The final shape of the reform is yet unknown. uh, There were were expectations that it would be concluded under the Hungarian presidency and a special ad-hoc working group was uh, created, but uh, um, it's still in the making. As I said, it illustrates the first signs of the acknowledgement of socio-economic implications of market regulation by the EU, which is uh, something welcomed and something very important. But the questions remain whether it will settle the conflict and which conflict exactly will it be settling. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, um, You work at the... um, the Swedish Institute for European Policy Studies. Yes, yes, maybe. But that's yeah. probably the
5: only Swedish thing
0: about me. <laughs> yeah, the always Swedish thing about you. Yeah, yeah. I did not see any. I did not. Uh, I did not hear any accent with regard to the Scandinavian uh, side of it. We have uh, now um, uh, 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 commentators on the on the list, uh, and Theophanis christoforu um, is is here, and um, the uh, the other. Um, um, uh, the other uh, person mentioned here, Gerald Hefner who is uh, who volunteered in, or would like very much to come here to to uh, to, to comment upon this, he uh, he got uh, sick in the uh, in the late late hours here, so he could not he could not appear. So that's why we we have a bit more time than uh, than scheduled. Yes, please. Yes, uh, uh, Christoforo, he is, a, uh, he is a principal legal adviser with the European Co- Co- Commission and he has been there since uh, 1984. He is currently in charge of uh, competition law and merchants and I think he is, uh, he is, uh, he is very well, uh, he, he knows very well of Christian's work and so we are pleased to, pleased to have you here. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I'm uh, really grateful
6: for inviting me here to to meet so many scholars, researchers, academics who indeed I know and I have worked in the past, uh, at least Christian and a few of his uh, students. Uh, this is a huge project, uh, and uh, to ask me to comment in ten minutes about this, uh, I guess uh, you wouldn't have high expectations. Uh, I would only say a few words about the center of the project on which I'm commending, as I have happened in my previous assignments with the European Commission to follow the WTO as of its own making since the negotiations in the way around, and for many years thereafter, uh, through the dispute settlement, and I was uh, representing the European uh, Union Commission at the time in a number of disputes, including hormones, asbestos, uh, bananas, uh, GMOs, and so on. So, uh, and the reason on which I will say a few words on this is because indeed the combination in the research that has been carried out in this part of the Recon project goes at the central of your theme, which is democracy and whether we do or do not have a constitution here. Uh, I think the combination that has been made. And the examples that have been chosen to be studied are very well uh, chosen. I have heard, and it's not a secret, if the argument is that the European Union may or must have a certain deficit, democratic, uh, then by definition, if you think of the WTO, the deficit is much bigger. If there is Uh, uh, an analysis that has to be made or has been made, Uh, the result will be that there is a a lot of deficit. The result is that when we were negotiating the WTO, we were not really thinking in those terms. We were feeling that this may develop progressively into an intrusive instrument in uh, uh, the organization uh, through the regulation of international trade into how these issues, uh, democracy, science, ethics, morality are regulated at state level, national level. But we didn't really have the vision to predict that it will develop in that way. During the negotiations and the first disputes that I just have mentioned to you, the the trade disputes before the WTO, uh, the expectation of some prominent members of the WTO community was that science will resolve trade disputes. The idea was that science is about facts, and science does not affect values, does not address moral issues, does not address ethical questions and so then I very much agree with the so-called one-dimensional orientation of the WTO which has been used in the study I have looked at uh, by Christian and the other researchers. Indeed it is one-dimensional and this is what the problems, this is what creates the problems. Gut, the old gut and the WTO when it treats Discriminatory measures, it can be an acceptable tool for dispute resolution, but as I said, it becomes problematic when it, uh, and it as it has tried to address non-trade issues, non-discriminatory issues in its dispute resolution, and uh, hormones can be one example, GMOs as well, where if you apply strictly science, you will not get a result which will be acceptable to those who have to comply with that and by complying with the WTO ruling on hormones or meat, treated meat, or GMOs, you don't necessarily mean the regulators as I am, but you speak of the public at large. And we have soon realized that the European public was not willing to accept the outcome, which means that uh, Science, as initially was thought to address only facts cannot be so and it has to take into account in the resolution of this kind of disputes issues of uh, normative social and moral values. The question then is what can you do? The suggestion by the group of uh, 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 study uh, addressed and previously mentioned briefly the conflict of laws approach is one. What I would like to say is that and has been mentioned before the European Union is not a static concept, project it is evolving constantly and it has constitutional aspirations and characteristics. There is no doubt about this in my view. What does it mean in reality and about the issues we are discussing now? That we have to think about legitimacy. And if we can think about legitimacy for projects like the European Union and for other international organisations, you have to measure the success on the basis of justice. And if you have to take into account justice, you have also to have a good idea about what kind of justice you have in mind. And that means that you have to have a good idea about democracy and democratic values and the rule of law as well. So since justice in the sense I have just mentioned is very closely dependent on ethics, the morality, and I can even mention a good measure of happiness, you want to measure how the public uh, perceives the regulation. We have to devise a system internally at the level of the Member States, the European community as a first representation, and when we, lit- lawyers, lawyers or litigators in, ca- in my case, go into the WTO, we are the projection at the international level of what these values are internally, and inevitably, these will be have to taken into account. As long as they are not taken into account, the tensions and the disputes will continue. So, Mr. Chairman, I think I will conclude here. The point is that uh, initially, the first. 10 years of the disputes were very disappointing in the WTO those of you who might have read the latest second uploaded by the report in the hormones case and the way it has now addressed or has made the opening to address the issues of scientific uncertainty the precautionary principle and how far science can be used to dissolve or resolve disputes of this kind I think I will, be, I will say there is a glimpse of hope which we need to nurture and provide help to the system to develop further in that direction. Thank you.
0: Yeah, it's a very apt comment. It, 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 it uh, pointed to, our, to, to invent the foundational elements of this uh, Checked also, and, 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 and what it is about, and we cannot, uh, uh, what we can leave to the science, and, and also to the legal scholars, and, and what we cannot, and what is in a way the people's uh, role here, and in a democracy they also have power, so they can they can they can strike back. But now there is some time for uh, for um, a kind of for questions and for. Um, if I am right, yes. Uh, uh, for 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 uh, for questions uh, or co- and comments to uh, to to what we have done. So, or, uh, someone who would um, who would say so, so something. Um, there is uh, there is a microphone in your in the chair of, in the arm of your chair, In the armchair, so that so that you don't have to to um, you don't so that you don't have to run for a microphone if you would like to uh, to speak uh, to speak up. We um. We have, in a way, I um, um, had this this uh, this um, um, title of this conference: uh, "Where is the Europe? Europe uh, European democracy heading? Where, are, where is it heading?" And, and um, of course, we are not into futurology in the in this sense, or, or predicting what will uh, what will happen. Uh, but uh, but we are, in a way, pointing to some. Uh, some um, um, features here and, and and structural developments and and uh, and uh, with regard to so some would say where are we now with regard to these to these models that we that we that that we put up? Of course, we are we are these are as I said ideal, typical models. We use these for 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 posing some hypotheses and and to and to um, seek for for. Um, for, for uh, how we can um, uh, uh, corroborate it, or them, or or not. But, uh, but the, the models as such have in a way this more normative or or, or uh, identical st- status. But, the, but in, in, in what is using them in more empirical ways, we of course can say that there is a lot of um, uh, that the union as, as such as, as a polity has moved in a sense beyond being an a clear international organization. That it cannot make sense of. Of a lot of things happening there with uh, with regard to to only an international organization. Why should, for example, have all these institutional apparatus in in Brussels if it was only uh, uh, an international organization and all all this, uh, all this first about, um, uh, uh, yeah, with with, uh, with, uh, being part with being democratic also as it has as the union itself has, has committed itself to be. But but we are so in that regard. We, we, well, some of the, the, the basic findings in this project is that we, we we are beyond this this first um, first model, but uh, we are definitely not into into model two. And and and, uh, and uh, some of the things that we we are trying to do by the by ending this project is to to figuring out more about this model three and how we can be. Um, how it can be something more than only governance, as uh, as we've seen thrown upon. So, so, this is, uh, this, is uh, this is of course saying something about a deeper and, and more um, um, uh, 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 deeper and more uh, institutionalized form of, of of government than than on the on the governance. And, and this is definitely also what we are, in a way, saying, uh, seeing in Europe. So maybe there is a kind of new, new model here evolving that we have no, no, no recipe for. Oh, no, We have not seen it before, so, so uh, how can we, in a way, make, make, make sense of it? So, so, and this is some of the things that we, try, we must we will work on in the later part of this, uh, of this project. But now I'm talking. Uh, it was, uh, uh, but uh, I can talk more. But if you, if there are others who would like to uh, to talk, that could be uh, even better. Or if, if there is some something they would like to have more more upon. Yeah, uh, this is uh, um, so who. Mr. Uh, uh, so
7: committee of the Regions. Uh, first of all, I would like to say, as someone who has been involved with the Recon project at an earlier stage, and now working in, in the Brussels bubble, trying to keep track of the academic debate, I think it's it's very useful to have a, a conference like this where the results or parts of the results are presented in a in a way to be digested, even by people who don't do this on a full-time basis. Um, I've just got a, a comment or a question which is addressed as much to people sitting on the panel now as to the people who were there sitting before, um, namely... Have you addressed or have you come across the issue of complexity uh, as a as a problem in the democratic development of the European Union? Because at a very basic level, I think everybody agrees that um, a lot of ideas being put forward right now for having more involvement of citizens, for bringing, um, bringing in more voices, also lead to more complexity, which then makes it very difficult to explain how the whole thing functions and may be even part of the explanation why people are turning away from voting and exercising their, their rights in, another, in other ways. So um, I'm asking you as academics, but also as European citizens, to those of whom that concerns, and even the Norwegian friends, um, do you think that the issue of complexity can be captured in your, in your research? Thank you.
0: Yeah, we, uh, may may uh, we would like to, to respond to this one. So be. Of course, uh, this is, just, just this is
8: about push on this one just this please. Okay, um the union is exceptionally complex uh thinking about not only linguistic cultural complexity but also institutional complexity. And of course that is one of the things that plays into the problems of developing the second model. We, we, we call it multinational national federation. That in itself is stretching the whole point about federal systems because remember that all federations in the world are based on more or less similar institutions at the state or provincial level. The union is not. This is one of the real important differences institutionally for the European Union, which means, it, means that it makes it much more difficult to coordinate policies at the union level. And the union has also been uh, straddled with the kind of German system of federalism in, in, in a certain sense at least. So it kind of centralizes uh, decision making to the union level. This could be one way of dealing with complexity. The problem is that it can be also too centralistic. So I think the union is trying to deal with complexity by siphoning out certain kinds of areas like security and and the, the earlier pillar structure so that they could have different decision procedures on this. And this is actually one way of dealing with complexity as it manifests itself also in political opposition. Uh, The other thing about complexity, you see also, for instance, uh, in the representative chain, that um, you you see this, for instance, having specific democratic implications in the relations between parliaments. uh, Chris was mentioning the notion of multi-level parliamentary field. It shows that the parliaments are linked together in in an exceptional way in the European Union, which raises absolutely unique questions of accountability. Who is accountability? who is accountable to whom under this kind of uh, problematic structure. So the lines, when when parliaments and decision-makers are implicated across levels, the classical idea of being accountable under a particular institutional arrangement is not the same in the European Union, a much more complex system of a kind of uh, interaction. So just... Who should you be holding to account when decisions are linked together in like this? This is in itself an important challenge. So it's just some examples of complexity as it comes up in the union in a, in a different way than you find it in a normal state, and it, it's it's a question that the union is struggling with. You should also look at the treaties, for instance, all the protocols and the exceptions that have been built into this, showing that complexity is sometimes something one also puts aside and gives exceptions to, which also generates problems of coordination and so on. So this is definitely a very fundamental structural component. And Eustace, of course, knows this being in the Committee of the Regions, which itself is dealing with its own complexity, just thinking about giving one regional outlet when you have such a a broad range of regions and expressions at the local level. This is a dimension we have, fortunately, with his aid, been able to say something about in Raycon, but it's probably a dimension that should have been given much more attention because it just amplifies the whole point about complexity. And I haven't even started to talk about cultural and other types of complexity. Thanks.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, there is one uh, one behind there, yes. Just... Uh,
9: yes, uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Catherine Gino of the European Commission. Uh, I, uh, yes, I think this sort of uh, presentation is extremely useful. Um, and maybe I had a question for Mrs. Sustek. Um I understand part of the debate is whether uh, the centre is, is internal or external, or the centre of gravity, the centre of decision. I understand the EU is trying to bring the centre to the centre. Um, and the, the, the question I had was uh, uh, how pertinent or how relevant the language issue would be. I am currently trying to work on this question of, of the language issue uh, as a, a relevant div- dimension or not in international law and in EU law. Of course, in the EU we have a system, a, a compact Uh, to work in 23 languages, which is, I believe, part of this balance which is um, being searched for. Uh, And I um, would like to know whether you have interest in this uh, language dimension at all in your uh, current research or not.
5: It was directed to um, me. So, no? yeah. yeah,
0: yeah
5: um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, um, I, I try to speak about the broad uh, diversity and um, the way of balancing the unity and diversity in the European Union. So, trying to look at uh, the um, socio-economic differences and differences in culture and um, preferences and concerns and. Probably language is a big part of it, but I haven't looked at at language particularly. I have uh, very interesting examples from the accession of my uh, home country where by the date of our accession 20% of a key was translated and that was the time when uh, the European Commission was uh, promoting... um, Wider consultation and the accessibility of uh, consultation procedures for citizens. So, definitely, language is an issue, but uh, it has not uh, particularly been something I've researched.
0: Yeah, uh, but, uh, yeah, maybe we could add something here from the coordinators. You, uh, Eric.
8: Yeah, uh, I think it is useful to um, t- differentiate between. Uh, cultural language uh, or language of cultural identification on the one hand and language of communication on the other hand. And what is interesting, of course, in, in, in the project is that you have a political language. That is, you have, for instance, you can think about a language or vocabulary for or grammar of democracy. And this is one of the things that we are, we are trying, struggling with in this project because the Grammar of democracy is associated with the nation state, generally. And then when the European Union comes up as an association of states with a new kind of vocation, the question is, can you adapt this type of grammar to the European Union? And that's why we have these different models that are trying to say something about how we can take concepts that we understand on one hand as quite universal and they are across the vernaculars because they are understood more or less similarly across vernaculars. However, they come with very specific constitutional and institutional connotations. And the question for us is at what level, how far up can you, or to generality, and how much can you re- reconfigure this? So this is something about the unity of language that I'm talking about. So even if you have cultural expressions and communication, you see this in the parliament with 23 official languages being spoken, more or less at least in translation and so on, and yet people are able to communicate. So it's not so that the vernaculars are a barrier to communication, but it channels communication, makes it more complex, and yet we should not keep out of sight the fact that there is a common political language. The question is how this can be transposed to understand and evaluate the new configuration that is emerging. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, there is one more hand over there. Did you find the microphone in your, in your armchair. Yeah, I just... This is very, mm-hmm. this is very, very, organized. You see, there is, a, okay. yeah, and switch it on. Uh,
9: I
1: hope it yeah, works. Simple. Sorry, um, I was just uh, Camille Pignan from the Robert Schuman Foundation, and we just published on last Monday a paper on trying to find resp- answer to national populism, and what one of our the the idea we launched was thing about European identity, and I was uh, puzzled to see that today we talk a lot about legal approach, about different model and so forth, but we haven't talked much about the identity, the question of European identity, and could it be, I know it's a big question out of it, uh, but it's also linked to democracy and demos and so forth, so it would be interesting if we could have some uh, discussion on this point.
0: Yeah, you ask. Uh, you, you ask a good question. And, the other on, and, uh, and the, we have a we have a a work package on uh, on uh, identity, and and we try to in this project to to distinguish between three forms of identity that corresponds to these three uh, three models in a way, thick and thin identity, and and uh, and. Um, um, uh, um, those who uh, were in charge of this uh, of, of, of this church are, are are not here and and I'm, I'm um i don 't know if uh, if uh, if I should try to say something Yonelik has 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 lifted his finger, so maybe he would like to uh, to do something We have definitely done a, a, a bit on 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 that one and, and also on the conceptual level and I can talk about that but but on the empirical level what what is really happening I, I, uh, you, There were some reports here earlier with regard to um, to, uh, to, uh, to the media but um, what is reflected in the media with regard to collective identity, but maybe Unnik um, you, you will add some something here.
8: Yeah, the. Um <coughs> The uh, uh, project, of course, uh, you can think about the models also as being different, differently configured in identity terms. The first model, of course, is based on continued national identities. You might say that it is based on liberal nationalism. None of the models would would uh, bring in ethnic nationalism because that's too exclusive to any kind of system like this. The other model is a very interesting one because I, I would argue that this is about a federal identity. And some people could say this is close to an idea of constitutional patriotism um, but constitutional patriotism could also be associated with the third model the cosmopolitan one. And of course a cosmopolitan identity is very interesting because on the one hand cosmopolitanism is based on moral universalism on the other hand a lot of uh, cosmopolitans are speaking to the uh, importance in cosmopolitan thought also of the local dimension and um, even that it might be compatible with national systems. So there's a big debate even on cosmopolitanism that we are trying to look at. But that's a more inclusive idea of identity than the national one. And of course, when you develop a system like the European Union, the question is is how inclusive it can be. And the other question, of course, is the if you want the rationality of identity in the sense of, of whether it is really culturally based and, and kind of pre-political in that sense, or whether it is more reflexive. Because... Cosmopolitanism, in some ways, is more reflexive. Some people even talk about it as ironic and so on, an ironist, as a, 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 a ch- challenging a lot of established things rather than a, a particular mode of attachment. So the project, I would argue, covers the broad span of identity debate as well, which is to some extent configured in the models, but of course with some play also in, the, in how this works out. But this is certainly an, an issue that we are dealing with quite systematically. Thanks.
0: We had a a, a a work a work package as it is called in this in this project management language, work package on identity and enlargement, and, and it was and it is uh, the, we have a group of people in uh, in Krakow that are in charge of of this one from from Poland, and we hope to be able to report more from this by the end of of this year because this is um, yeah, we. Uh, yeah, we are going to um, to uh, to inc- include this in the end end reporting that will come at when the project is over in in, in the autumn. So um, by now we did not have a, yeah, it did not fit fit in fit in, in here to do something on on this. But but we hopefully we, we can come back on on this with more empirics on this. But it, it is it is very deep into the project, and also with regard to to. The problem of being able to do something. If if, able, if the union should do, we'll be able to do something to mobilize resources for solving some of the problems and, and to mobilize to establish a kind of common will. There is a kind of there is a need for a kind of identity, of what, in what form, or the, or the other. But there is a lively lively debate and struggle on this in in the academic among the academics. Um, yeah, and we will be back on this later. But, uh, what uh, what I could uh, we should not uh, drag this out. If there is uh, if there is no more questions, I would just uh, end by by seeing by by saying just this um, uh, thing. Of when we have been dealing with some of the the problems with the union, both uh, uh, with regard to the economic problem and also the the democratic problems, that it has been. Underlying a kind of need for a kind of, of of reconstituting, not only not only democracy, but reconstituting the the European Union. That there is a a need for an overhaul here, in 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 a sense, with the with the regard to all the problems with the, the treaty. But um, and, and of course the, and of course in this regard there is this there is this need for this kind of collective. Um, uh, enterprise in Europe, someone must feel something for each other and for, uh, for this kind of of, of, of of problems to be solved it hasn't, but it has of course a lot to do with leadership and the will among among, among among actors here so and in that regard, it is hard to to predict anything what 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 should happen what what will happen but uh, but uh, some of the structural problems that we have discovered um, um, here is, is, is of course um, um, uh, uh, cause, in we, we, for a, 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 for some renewal here and for, for some overhauling here that is of, of a, a large, large scale. But what we also have in a way, we have, this is with regard to Krista um, to uh, to um, also with regard to, to it was this mention of, of democratic deficit and this kind of thing. And so uh, well, my idea or the idea here is that we, we have to have something to start with and to work with. And, and this, uh, but, but the democratic deficit for the union, especially with these markets so integrated and this kind of thing, would have been... Much much bigger, if it has not been in a way there, the, if the union has not existed so, so this is for, for us to do, to do this kind of critical research it is also it is, it has also always um, they have also this problem of being, of being placed in a, in a specific position with, with regard to this. We must be able to to see that this, uh, the European project as such is, uh, is a viable and a very interesting one and we saw it also in, in, in the media in the media reports we had that there, there is exactly the this support for, for cooperation, for more European cooperation. It is, what is the problem? is in the way that things are, are going, and in the way the, the ability to do something with, with a lot of these, uh, of these problems. So, um, and since there are nobody uh, who have raised their hands, uh, we can in the way go for uh, lunch, can't we? we we'll say thank you, thank you very much, and thank you very much for you to come and also for the local organizers here. And it's okay. So.